Well, let's pray as we come to God's word now. Father, we thank you for our risen Lord Jesus. We believe in him. We trust in him as our savior. And also we believe in the Holy Spirit. We thank you for him and for his ministry amongst us. And we pray that even now as we come to your word, that the Spirit of Christ would be at work amongst us and that our minds stand the scriptures, that we might respond with repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus, in whose name we ask all of these things. Amen. Well, please do have your Bible open there at that passage of scripture which we read a little earlier on in our service tonight, Luke chapter 24 and verses 36 through to 49. And as you just cast your eye over Luke's account of the first Easter day here in chapter 24, you notice that he presents it to us in three distinct episodes. There is the episode of the empty tomb there in verses 1 to 12. Then there is the episode of the Emmaus Road in verses 13 through 35. And then the third and final episode from that day is the episode of the locked room, as I'm going to call it, here in these verses to which we turn this evening. And so far in this sermon series in Luke's Gospel, we've of course looked at the first of those two episodes of that Easter day. And it has to be said that the risen Jesus has been somewhat elusive so far. In the episode of the empty tomb, uh, he doesn't appear at all. In the episode of the Emmaus Road, he is there, of course, and yet initially the eyes of Cleopas and his friend are kept from recognizing him. They don't realize that the risen Jesus is there. Then eventually when at last their eyes are opened and they see that Jesus is before them and that he is risen, At that moment, he then vanishes from their sight. And you notice, don't you, so far in Luke's account of Resurrection Day, the risen Jesus has been somewhat elusive. And all of that is going to change as we come to episode three, the episode of the locked room. And as we look at these verses tonight, I'd like us to notice four things from this episode. Firstly this, the risen Jesus brings peace. The risen Jesus brings peace. So let's set the scene. It's late into the evening. We're in a a crowded room somewhere in Jerusalem. Ten of the apostles are there And along with them, there's a number of uh, other followers of Jesus. And a few minutes previously, Cleopas and his friend have come into the room. And, of course, the topic of conversation is, naturally, the resurrection. 
By this point, Jesus has appeared already to Peter. He's appeared to Mary. As well as this, Cleopas and his friend are, of course, uh, filling everyone else in on this amazing conversation that they've had with the risen Jesus on the Emmaus Road. And despite all of that excitement, the doors of the room are still locked, we learn from the other Gospels. This group of disciples are still concerned about what the Jewish authorities might do to them. And so they're hidden away in this overcrowded, locked room somewhere in Jerusalem, talking to one another about the resurrection. And it's whilst all of this is going on that something amazing happens. Luke says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. Now the question is, how did Jesus get into the room? We don't really know how he did it. Some people say that the resurrection body of Jesus had the ability to walk through material things so he could just walk through the the locked door or even through the walls of this room. Personally, I don't think that's what happened that evening. Remember how we've just been told a few verses beforehand that Jesus had vanished as he was speaking to Cleopas and his friend. And I think, therefore, that Just as Jesus was able to vanish like that, uh, he was also able to appear suddenly. And I think it much more likely, therefore, that the miracle described here is one of Jesus appearing when and where he so desired, rather than him walking through a, a locked door. And where did Jesus desire to appear that evening? And... He desired to appear with his followers, his people, his church. There they were gathered together in his name on a Sunday evening. Gathered together in order to speak to one another about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And all that it meant for them. And Jesus desired to be present with them as they did so. Just as, in a very similar way, we ourselves, as the church today of Jesus Christ, have gathered together in this room on this Sunday, and we have done so in Christ's name, in order to speak to one another about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and all that it means for us. And as surely as Jesus was present in that room with them, there is in Jesus is present with us tonight by his spirit. And what did Jesus have to say to his people as he was present with them that evening? Well, he says simply this, peace to you. Peace to you. Don't miss the significance of that short statement. Just pause for a moment and consider when Jesus had last been with this group of disciples as a group like this. It had been, of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane just three days beforehand. And remember how repeatedly some of the disciples had fallen asleep 
even though Jesus had repeatedly asked them to pray. Remember how when the Jewish authorities and the Roman soldiers turned up in order to arrest Jesus, the disciples deserted him. Remember how three times Peter had denied him. Time and time again, that thing, the disciples had let Jesus down in his moment of greatest need. But now as the risen Jesus comes to be with his disciples together once again, there is, there is no disapproving shake of the head, is there? There's no rolling of the eyes. Uh, there's no rebuke even. And instead, the risen Jesus brings peace to his followers. Peace to you. What a gracious saviour we have. Let that comfort your heart. That you may have let him down in a thousand different ways. You may feel utterly unworthy of standing before Jesus. But there is this wonderful assurance here for you, isn't there? Jesus is not disgusted with you. He doesn't keep you at arm's length. As someone has put it, there is in his almighty heart an infinite willingness to put away man's transgressions. Though our sins have been as scarlet, he is ever ready to make them white as snow, to blot them out, to cast them behind his back, to bury them in the depths of the sea, to remember them no more. The risen Jesus comes to his people saying, peace to you. Now what is the peace that Jesus speaks of here? Remember how at the start of Luke's gospel, at the birth of Jesus, the angels had sung these words, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among, whom, among those with whom he is pleased. Remember how later on in Luke's gospel, Jesus said to the sinful woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. This is peace with God that Jesus speaks of. Thanks to his death, thanks to his resurrection, our sin is paid for, we're forgiven, we're reconciled to God, we're declared right in his eyes, we're adopted into his family, we've been brought near Though by nature and by practice we were so far off. And we are now at peace with our God forevermore. Paul says to the Romans, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the first thing to notice from the episode of the locked room. The risen Jesus brings peace. And secondly, notice this, the risen Jesus provides proof the risen Jesus provides proof and the disciples it has to be said were pretty slow in fully accepting the truth of the resurrection despite the fact that Jesus had repeatedly predicted that he would rise from the dead and even despite the fact that he'd already appeared to some of the people in that room that day Despite the fact that there he is now standing in front of them for them all to see. He's speaking to them. Those in the room that evening still 
can't quite take it all in. Luke says they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And they're still trying to make sense of it all. It's all just too much for them to take in as yet. And they feel this mixture in their minds and and hearts of joy but also fear. Belief but, but also unbelief mixed in there as well. And so when Jesus suddenly appears in the room before them, out of thin air, so to speak, some of them think that this is a ghost who is before them. And once again, Jesus graciously condescends to his followers. He says to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? And in order to deal with their troubled hearts, And in order to dispel those doubts, Jesus provides proof of his resurrection. Notice he does that in two ways. First of all, he displays his wounds. He says to the disciples, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. The resurrected body of Jesus still bears the the wounds of his suffering. They will be the only wounds visible in glory. And those wounds bear witness to the fact that Jesus has suffered for his people. And by those wounds... As Isaiah puts it, by those wounds we are ourselves healed. And Jesus invites his disciples to take a close inspection of these wounds, just as he would do so for Thomas a week later. Thomas was not there in this room at this point. And the wounds on the hands and the feet of the risen Jesus prove beyond all doubt that the same Jesus who died by crucifixion on the Friday afternoon and whose body was placed in the tomb that evening, rose again, physically, the same body, walking out of that grave on the Sunday morning. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus then provides a second proof of his resurrection. The disciples are still disbelieving for joy. Still the reality hasn't sunk in. Still they don't know what to make of what they see before them. There's this amalgamation of joy and disbelief swirling round in the hearts of the disciples still. And so Jesus provides yet more proof of his resurrection. And he said to his disciples, have you anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of fish and he took it and ate it before their eyes. And of course, it's not that Jesus is particularly hungry at this point. It's not that all of a sudden he, he really needs something to eat. Now, once again, he is providing proof of his bodily resurrection. The risen Jesus is not a spirit floating around. He's not an apparition. He's not a a vision. No, he is as physical as you are and I am. Um, He can pick up a, a piece of food and he can eat it just like we can. And by doing this, you see Jesus is graciously condescending to his disciples. He's meeting them in the midst of their confusion and their unbelief. And he is providing the physical proof that they need 
in order to see that he really is risen from the dead. Now, of course, as Christians, we can't do that today in quite the same way, can we? We can't reach out and touch the body of the risen Jesus like they did on that Sunday evening. And we know where the, the body of Jesus is right now. There's no doubt about that. He is seated on the throne of heaven at the right hand of the Father. We can't touch him physically in that same way. And yet, nonetheless, Jesus has given to his church, if you like, the proofs of his resurrection. He's given us, first of all, his word, the scriptures, the reliable eyewitness accounts of his resurrection, so that even though we weren't there physically in person, we can read the accounts as we are this evening and hear the account of the risen Jesus and what he did and what he said in his resurrected body. And as well as the word, Jesus also meets us in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And it's in this way that the risen Jesus condescends graciously to us as he did this morning. And he gathers us around his table. And he meets us there in the midst of our confusion and our lack of belief. And there at the table, he, he assures us of what he has done for us in his death and his resurrection. He puts the, the visible emblems, the physical signs of his death and resurrection before our eyes to see. And so in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, when we come to the Lord's table as we did this morning, we can say, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely was his body offered for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. And as surely as I receive from the hand of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely does he himself, now as the risen Christ, nourish and refresh my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood. You see, don't you, the risen Jesus provides his church with the proof that they need of his resurrection on that night, allowing them to inspect his wounds. And today for us as a church, giving us his word and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which both bear witness to the truth of his resurrection. And as he stands before the disciples that evening in that locked room, he gives them the proof that they need, uh, the proof that he is risen, which in turn proves that his death was sufficient, which in turn proves that our sin is paid for, and proves therefore that eternal life is ours in him, and proves that one day we will be raised from the dead physically, just as he was. The risen Jesus provides proof of these things for his church. And then thirdly, notice this, the risen Jesus fulfills prophecy. The risen Jesus fulfills prophecy. Now earlier that day, you know that Jesus had been walking on the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and his friend. And on that road, he had preached an incredible sermon to them. We looked at it, of course, last time we were in Luke's Gospel. And as Luke puts it, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, 
He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And now, a few hours later, in this locked room with this larger company of disciples, Jesus does effectively the same thing all over again. It's pretty much the same sermon, I think. And yet there is one notable exception, as we shall see. Luke writes, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you whilst I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now the parts of the Bible that Jesus mentions here, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, they are the three major divisions of the Old Testament as the Jews arranged it. And so what Jesus is saying here is simply the whole of the Old Testament is about me. Turn to whatever section of it you like. Turn to whatever book you like. And it is all pointing to me. He said to the Pharisees, didn't he? You you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me. The scriptures, Jesus says, all point to him. The law of Moses points to him. The prophets point to him. The Psalms point to him. And the disciples had never fully understood this point before. Now, of course, in some ways, they had understood that Jesus fulfilled certain things from the Old Testament. But they'd never seen the big picture. They had never understood that in their fullest sense, all the scriptures speak of Jesus and if you've never seen how the Old Testament in its entirety speaks of Jesus then you you haven't rightly understood the Old Testament yet and so Luke says in verse 45 then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures And you see, don't you, it takes the work of Christ by his spirit at work in a person's mind and in a person's heart for them to understand truly the scriptures, to see that the scriptures bear witness to him, they speak of him. The whole Bible is about Jesus. And without this enabling that Christ gives graciously, no one can rightly understand the scriptures. Now, they, they might know the Old Testament off by heart, but if they can't see how it is all about Jesus, ultimately, they haven't understood it yet. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. Picking up on that point, the Puritan John Owen wrote these words, without the Holy Spirit, we may as well burn our Bibles. Without the Holy Spirit, we may as well burn our Bibles. J.C. Ryle sums it up well when he says, we all need a like enlightenment of our understandings. We see the words, but do not thoroughly understand them until we are taught from above. He that desires to read his Bible with profit must first ask the Lord Jesus 
to open the eyes of his understanding by the Holy Spirit. Human commentaries are useful in their way. The help of good and learned men is not to be despised. But there is no commentary to be compared with the teaching of Christ. A humble and prayerful spirit will find a thousand things in the Bible which the proud, self-conceited student will utterly fail to discern. Well, let me ask you, is this how you come to the Bible? Whenever you read it, whenever you hear it read, whenever you hear it preached, that first and foremost you ask the Lord Jesus to give you understanding of it by the Holy Spirit. Because without his help, we will never understand the scriptures. Pray that he would give you that understanding of the scriptures through the work of the Holy Spirit. And as he opens the minds of these disciples to understand the scriptures, Jesus, you notice, points his disciples to three main ways in which the Old Testament speaks of him. Firstly, he showed how the Old Testament speaks of the sufferings of Christ. The Old Testament speaks of the sufferings of Christ. Thus it is written, says Jesus, that the Christ should suffer. I don't know, but maybe at that point Jesus turned to Isaiah 53, perhaps, or a a similar passage, a passage of the Old Testament that showed the crucifixion was prophesied there in the Old Testament, that one would be pierced for our transgressions. And then secondly, he showed how the Old Testament speaks of the resurrection of Christ. Jesus continues, on the third day, rise from the dead. I would guess that at that point, Jesus turned to Psalm 16. He pointed out how it said, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor let your Holy One see corruption. Remember, Jesus had made both of those first two points in that sermon that he'd preached on the road to Emmaus. Just glance back for a second at verse 26. Jesus says there, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? You see those first two points, don't you? Uh, The suffering of Christ and his glory, his death and his resurrection. But in the locked room, when he gives this sermon for the second time, he adds a third point to it. And the third point is this he points out how the old testament speaks of the proclamation of christ to all nations and so he continues and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from jerusalem now you might ask why does jesus add this third point to the sermon Why not keep it to the two that he'd given on the road to Emmaus? Why add the third point? And I think the reason is because as he preaches this sermon this time around, it's not just Cleopas and his friend who are there, but now the group of the apostles are there as well. And of course, they will have this primary role in taking that gospel out from Jerusalem to the nations. And Jesus shows how that work of gospel proclamation throughout the world is prophesied in the Old Testament, even as the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ was prophesied in the Old Testament. 
And again, I don't know, but maybe Jesus turned to Isaiah 49 at this point in the sermon, where the Lord says of him, the suffering servant, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Not just salvation for Jacob and Israel, but salvation for people all over the world, prophesies Isaiah. And here we are, 2,000 years later, 2,000 miles away, here in this little town of Crumlin, on this small island in the Atlantic Ocean. And even here, and even now, this same message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, is being proclaimed, fulfilling this prophecy. The question is, of course, how have you responded to that message? And it's clear, isn't it, the response that is called for is one of repentance. That is turning away from sin and turning toward Jesus in faith, resting on him alone. Recognizing that without him, there is no hope for any of us. And for those who respond in that way, there is the assurance that all of their sin is forgiven in Christ's name. And they're now at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder, is that how you responded to this proclamation of Christ? And if you ask someone who has repented of sin and has trusted in Jesus. Well, what are you to do now? And simply you are to get involved in this great work that Jesus speaks of here, of the gospel of Jesus being proclaimed to all the nations of the world. It is a a huge job, isn't it? And to that end, the risen Jesus sends power to energize and to enable his church for the task that is set before her. And that's the fourth and the final thing to notice here in the episode of the locked room, that the risen Jesus sends power. He sends power. And the apostles would not have to undertake this enormous task in their own strength, thankfully. No, the risen Jesus would send them all the help that they would need as his witnesses so that they could take his gospel out from Jerusalem to the nations of the world. And so Jesus continues, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. What's Jesus talking about here when he mentions the promise of my father and power from on high? He is, of course, talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the promise of the Father because long since the Father had promised again and again through the prophets that the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon his people. So we might turn, for example, to Ezekiel 36 where the Lord promises, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
And that promise of the Father, that gift of the Holy Spirit, was of course fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out upon the church. And it is the Holy Spirit who empowers the church to be true and effective witnesses in taking the gospel to the nations. He's what we need, isn't he? If we're going to be faithful in our part of this great work of sharing Christ with the world. We can't do it on our own and thankfully we don't have to. And by giving us his spirit, the risen Jesus has sent power to us so that we can be effective in our witness as a church and as individuals. And so pray that we would know that power of the spirit in all of our work as a church, as we serve our risen Lord and Saviour. Let's pray together now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that we see of the risen Jesus in this great episode of what happened in the locked room that Sunday evening. We praise you that the risen Jesus is the one who brings us peace. He brings us into peace with you because he died for our sin and rose again. And in him we are forgiven. In him we are reconciled to you. We thank you for the gracious condescension of Jesus in providing proof of his resurrection. And we thank you that both in the word and in the sacraments, the risen Jesus comes to meet us by his spirit. And he does so in order to build us up in our faith. He deals with our unbelief he deals with our doubts he deals with our lack of assurance he nourishes us and builds us up in him he shows us what he has accomplished for us in his death and resurrection we thank you that jesus is the subject of all of the scriptures and that in his death and his resurrection he has fulfilled what the prophets spoke of him And not only that, but also the scriptures predict that the gospel of Jesus would go out into all of the world. We pray for those around us who haven't yet turned from sin and trusted in Jesus, that they would do so in order to receive forgiveness. Open minds, we pray, to truly understand the scriptures and to respond rightly to its message, we pray. And we ask that we ourselves, as the church, would be faithful in proclaiming Christ to the world. Father, we thank you that your promise of the Holy Spirit is now fulfilled in that he has been poured out upon the church and that he is the one who equips us for our mission. And so by the Spirit, we pray that you would make our ministry here in this place effective for the saving of sinners and for the sanctification of the saints and for the glory of God. We pray it all in the powerful name of the risen Lord Jesus. Amen.